Welcome to the Clarinet Podcast, the show about all that's new and neat with clarinet, with the neatest people in the industry. You can support the ongoing production of this independently produced program by donating to our Patreon at clarinet.com support. Supporters get early access to extended ad-free podcasts and exclusive access to patron-only episodes and live events. And now for today's episode of the podcast, a special 90th birthday celebration for none other than Stanley Drucker. Everything is individual. Everybody has their own idea of what sounds good. And, and you, you have to develop your own taste as to whether it, it's, it satisfies or not, or it says what you want it to say. Artistically, you have to have an idea. Welcome to the Clarinet Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Perrin. Today on the show, Stanley Drucker, who of course was the New York Philharmonic's principal clarinetist for many years and who played in the orchestra for over 60 years total, joins me for a special 90th birthday celebration. If you're listening to this episode on the day of its release, this day, February 4th, 2019, is actually Stanley's 90th birthday and uh, he should be having a nice party in New York there with some of his closest family and colleagues. In this Q&A style episode today, we discuss practice and performance techniques, what it was like working with Leonard Bernstein, Glenn Gould, and other major artists, how it felt winning a Guinness World Record for longest orchestral career as a clarinetist, how Stanley never cracked a clarinet in over 60 years, amazingly, and much more. Thank you so much to listeners all around the world for sending in questions, and to Jerry Bunky for proposing this great idea. Speaking of Jerry Bunky, he is also providing special access to great pricing on the five-disc Heritage Collection set that Stanley Drucker mentions in the previous episode of the podcast, and which I hope to also delve into more on future episodes of the show with Stanley. Oh, and did I mention that each copy will be signed? So this is a great chance to not only get fantastic pricing on this five-CD set, but also obtain a signed copy and uh, help support Stanley's legacy into the future. Speaking of Stanley's legacy, um, I was trying to think of a way that I could help directly support uh, the birthday celebrations in New York there. And you know, I don't actually live in New York and I don't really want to do something like send a clarinet cake or something ridiculous like that. So what I decided to do actually, in addition to producing this podcast on a whole, is release the lightning round portion public to the clarinet community all over the world. I think that that will be just a great way to help Stanley's legacy uh, reach as many people as possible. Um, You know, if you do enjoy this lightning round portion, just keep in mind that this is normally private for the Patreon backers only, and you can get access to this for as little as $1 a month. So um, I do feel that I want to provide the best value possible, but I also need help producing this show on a monthly basis. It takes a lot of time, a lot of effort, and there's a lot of cost behind the scenes. So if you do appreciate the content, you want to see more of it, please consider becoming a supporter on Patreon. And this is a month where we've actually sustained 40 backers for the whole month. So starting in February here, we're going to have the first ever live event with a special guest who I'll be announcing very soon. So don't miss out. Get a chance to participate in not only this live event, but hear the bonus content every single episode. And also the Patreon episodes are ad-free, so um, check it out. It, learn more. It's only a dollar a month. I know that strangely enough, in the world of $5 lattes, $1 is actually a big bridge to cross. So I really appreciate the fact that 40 people are taking the time not only to support the show, but but to provide me with some of their hard-earned um, income and, and let this show be possible into the future. So thank you so much to the Patreon community for your support and for making the show possible. And thank you also to the support of our generous sponsors. And we'll get to today's episode right after these short messages. Join renowned clarinetist David Schifrin at the International Clarinet Celebration in beautiful Portland, Oregon, June 24th to 30th. Hosted by Chamber Music Northwest, this event combines a full week of concerts by world-class artists like Corrado Giuffredi and Jose Frank Biester. 
There's also clarinet masterclasses, lectures, clarinet mentors amateur workshops, ensemble performance opportunities, a clarinet marketplace, and a young artist competition. Passes are on sale now, and you can learn more at cmnw.org. Dario Woodwinds has an exciting new weekly trivia show called Don't Blow It. You can check it out every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time on their Instagram channel. And if you know the right answers to the questions, you might even have the chance to win some amazing new gear. By the way, if you haven't had a chance to try D'Addario's new reserve clarinet reads, you're in for a real treat. They're using some really amazing new technology and manufacturing techniques that are helping achieve super consistent results. You can pick up a box at your local music store or head to clarinet.com reads to buy a box right now. Hosting for Clarinet is sponsored by Bakun and their new line of Lumiere clarinets, barrels, and bells. Get 10% off your next accessory purchase by using code Clarinet at bakunmusical.com. So I'm here again with Stanley Drucker. Stanley, thank you so much for coming on the podcast again. Well, it's a pleasure, Sean. So, of course, your returning here today is in celebration of your 90th birthday. So I want to start off and just say a happy birthday from the entire clarinet community and especially from the clarinet community. Well, thank you very much. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Any special plans for your birthday there in the city? or? I guess uh, we'll have a little party uh, uh, our daughter uh, and our son also uh, uh, and spouses will come up from uh, to New York uh, from uh, California where they where everybody seems to to live these days. So if you have any clarinet music going on at your your party there or clarinet cake or anything fun like that? <laughs> well, I, I'm just curious to see what what evolves. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So we've got some listener questions today from all around the world. Uh, people were so kind in sending these in, and I want to thank everybody for submitting all of your questions for Stanley here. Um, so the first one is from Ron S. And he says, Stanley, you have such a great sound. I love to listen to you. Do you use double tonguing or just single tonguing? I use single tonguing. It, it seemed, uh, you know, uh, when I was a student, uh, only the uh, double double reed instruments seem to double tongue. I guess it, you know uh, oboes, flutes uh, did the double tonguing, but not clarinet. There were there were very few people that uh, did that. So that's interesting to me. What's your what's your strategy for getting a great single tongue technique then? Well, I guess you you have to keep uh, practicing and and uh, learn the different articulations uh, for the short notes. You know, sometimes they they have to be very light so they can move faster, and and sometimes they have to be very very uh, individual in 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 the in the shortness. You know, because it's not just one short note. There there's so many ways of playing different kinds of short notes. How did you work to get your tonguing so fast? Uh, I guess I was uh, uh, always looking back and making sure nobody was catching me. <laughs> so the next question is from Erin O. And she says, what was your practice routine like before you won your first job and how did it change over the years? Well, I would, I would say that uh, when I was a young student practicing or, or playing or however you want to call it, uh, I, I would just play as, as many pages of everything as I could uh, and just didn't... Uh, uh, stop and say, I'm going to do this thing, uh, this two measures, uh, many, many times uh, uh, when it wasn't necessary to do that. And, and uh, I think perhaps uh, I, I played everything a little too fast, maybe, uh, as young people do. Uh, but uh, as long as you, you play often, uh, that's the, the, the main thing. And the, the, the idea is to learn, or to learn a repertoire not to just to play the same exercises all the time. 
because it, it, re- repetition is great, but uh, if nothing changes with repetition, uh, it seems to be a little futile. Uh, uh, one has to find an, a, a change of some kind, an improvement of some kind uh, to, uh, to warrant constant repetition. I want to just unpack something you said there a little bit. You mentioned or you implied that you sort of don't draw a distinction between practicing and playing. Are they, are they one and the same to you? Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I've, I've, I've said to this to many people, if you're playing a concert, no matter how important or unimportant it is, learn that music. Learn that music. That's what you have to uh, uh, strive for. Yeah, the music should be the same at home when your practice room is on stage. So why not just treat it all the same? Right. But you have to play that music. You see, you can't say I'm going to play a rose study uh, and then go out uh, uh, three days later and, and play in a, in a concert where you have to play actual pieces. I love that. So what does your, when you get to a concert, what does your ideal warm-up routine look like? Well, uh, I think the first thing is to make sure your read works. <laughs> That's probably very important. And, and uh, the ability to, uh, to be flexible and to know what you can do with a given read. Absolutely. And then, so how do you get your fingers and your, your tongue and all that going? Maybe scales or something like that? Oh, absolutely. Scales are very important. Scales, chords, uh, uh, thirds are very important. Uh, uh, that kind of thing. But, but also, uh, the articulation is very important because uh, very often it's very easy just to, to play everything, uh, you know, legato or everything. Uh, uh, detached, but it's the actual markings of of music where where you might have one short note and three long ones or uh, three slurred uh, notes or any combination uh, thereof. You know, you want to really get the articulation of of uh, of the music down and really uh, have have a, a, an interesting uh, result. Do you think about warming up each element of your playing separately, like the, the blowing and then the tonguing and then the fingers, or do you kind of incorporate them all at the same time? Well, you know, it, it, it depends. It depends. Sometimes you have a lot of time to uh, to really uh, warm up, if you want, as a term used, uh, uh, and sometimes you don't have that much time. Uh, so uh, I say, if you if you're at a school concert or whatever, or a professional concert or whatever. Uh, you want to make sure that that uh, you you can make the sound properly. So it, you may have to do it quicker, and you you might not have have the uh, the the luxury of of a specific longer time to uh, to get ready. But uh, but you have to know the music you're going to play, and that's that, that's probably the the biggest preparation. I'm going to assume that you normally would warm up at the venue, or did you ever warm up before commuting into town? No, no, no. It, 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 at the venue, it's because every every place you play in is a little different. You know, if you play in a large hall or, or in a small chamber hall or 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 in a, in a place that looks like it's got a good acoustics and it and it's as dead as a doornail. Uh, that has an effect also. You know, you're pleased. Most people are pleased when they have they have a, a hall that gives gives them a little bit of uh, a feedback, and you you have something to uh, to play against you know it it the whole helps there's no question about it i've kind of an unrelated question but it just came to mind as something that i would be uh, very interested in so in this day and age i know a lot of people who advocate recording yourself at a distance when you're playing so that you can listen to what you sound like 
Um, what was it like practicing and being a student before these kind of technologies were readily available? Well, you know, it's very, it's very difficult to, to know how it's heard way back in, in a room, whatever kind of room you're playing in. That's kind of hard to do, but you have to hear everything within yourself. And the dynamics are very important. Uh, you know, soft playing should have as much presence as loud. And and you you have to play really, really to, to feel that you're, whatever you're saying musically uh, can get to the end of a room or hall. No matter how soft it could be, the, the loud is probably easier. And, and the, the danger with that is that you end up playing everything at the same level and uh, it's not good enough. So you want to keep up that intensity even on the soft notes? Well, the soft, the soft has, you know, Tabito used to say, soft has to sound as good as loud. Last time we talked, you said something about how you can't play a wrong note, but maybe you can play a wrong style. And that started making me think about how can we inject our own personality and an artistic vision, but yet maintain that stylistic integrity? Well, it, you know, it, everything is individual. Everybody has their own idea of what sounds good. And, and you, you have to develop your own taste as to whether it, it's, it satisfies or not, or it says what you want it to say. Uh, because, uh, you know, you can hear a familiar piece played by six different people and there will, there will be a lot of differences. So you, you, uh, you have to, artistically, you have to have an idea. And uh, just to say, I'm going to do this like, uh, uh, you know, this person uh, or that person uh, doesn't always uh, work for you. I mean, you have, to, uh, you have to try to satisfy yourself. Nobody is ever fully satisfied, but... Uh, you have to reach a certain level of performance uh, where you feel you've you've been honest with composer's wishes. So is what you're sort of saying that if we have an artistic vision, we can actually be responsible for creating a new style? Well, you, you know, the, the thing is, it, it depends on, on what you're playing and where. And now, orchestrally, you have to adhere to certain, certain standards and, or certain uh, methods uh, where you have to uh, be part of a large palette and you have to satisfy whoever is conducting uh, and and you have to play uh, in context always uh, with the people around you. I mean, many times you enhance somebody and, and, and other times they have to enhance you. Playing artistically on an instrument uh, is a, a total picture, you know, it's not just one one item. So what do you think of artists like Glenn Gould then, who famously in playing, you know, the quote wrong style kind of created their own niche in that way? Oh, I, well, uh, well uh, he was certainly a unique individual uh, and, and very artistic in his, in his approach. Uh, I know that uh, he, he was a little radical with, with uh, some of the tempos of, of pieces that people were used to hearing a certain way, but uh, uh, then, then again, uh, his, his approach to Bach was uh, was very unique. Uh, if you listen to that, some of his re uh, recordings of Bach, you see that it, there was a certain kind of a drive uh, that uh, that uh, you know was different than anybody else's. You know, it's funny with him. At the end of his career, he was becoming a conductor, and it's a shame that he died when he did because I would have loved to see how he worked with a lot more orchestral repertoire in that same way. 
Right, right. I, I know he, he was a soloist with us at the Philharmonic many times, and, and uh, he, he, uh, he had very strong ideas about, uh, uh, about tempo and, and, and style, if you want to use that word, uh, uh, but certainly valid, very valid, uh, because there isn't just one way to do something. And uh, he really made a statement, uh, though the one didn't have to agree with his tempos in, in, in works they've heard many times, uh, he, he seemed to favor in certain works a very slow tempo uh, very but, but uh, uh, very slow you know so it, it, it depends uh, it, people rethink uh, familiar music all the time i guess is there any particular moment from working with glenn gould that you remember well i re- remember the famous uh, concert uh, of the of the brahms first uh, piano concerto with uh, bernstein uh, I think Lenny, uh, after one of the movements, uh, turned around and spoke to the audience. I think that's even available on tape, where he he, he said, uh, "Mr. Gould is a wonderful artist, but I but I take no responsibility for this performance, and uh, and he has his ideas, you know, and he was he, he was not happy with uh, with his approach to to that piece. But I thought the performance it was very interesting. I thought it was great." Uh, as as it would be, you know, uh, from a professional standpoint. Yeah, you know, I think I've read about that. I studied Glenn Gould extensively, and it's uh, really amazing to hear that you were there for that moment. Yes, well, it, I I was there for a lot of moments, sure. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, many moments, more than I can imagine. The next question is actually about uh, the many moments that you had with the orchestra. So Catherine P. asks, and I've expanded on it a little bit, but you played over 10,000 concerts with the New York Phil and you actually have a Guinness World Record for the longest career as a clarinetist. And she says, I'm sure many pieces were repeated dozens and maybe hundreds of times, like the Nutcracker. Um, what is the piece that no matter how many times you play it, you're always glad to play it again? When I was young, I mean, the, the familiar pieces, the ones with the, you know, the important solos, or the interesting uh, lines, uh, one looks forward to those, you know, and I, I would say that uh, you do get to play a lot of pieces m- many times. I think of a, of a period of time when it, it felt as if we were playing the Beethoven Seventh Symphony every week and people were getting a little tired of it. What advice do you have for playing pieces again and again like that? Well, you have to make them fresh. You have to you have to play them as if it's the first time, and uh, it, you know the, the great works are the great works. I mean that's the permanent collection in any uh, artistic organization, you know, and and you look forward to them, and 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 they they come back often, and and with the different conductors, uh, a different approach comes with them also, and uh, it, it's very interesting how how different they can sound uh, depending on who is directing. What is the piece you think you played the most? The most? Oh my goodness! That uh, <laughs> that's that'd be a tough one. Uh, but of course, the, the standard, uh, you know, collection that was oh, played a lot. It had to be because the uh, the audiences all over the world they want to hear they want to hear these uh, these premier works. You know, sometimes you you uh, certain certain conductors. Uh, favored the certain types of music or certain composers. And so you really got to uh, have a real insight into uh, into some of these works that you hear often. 
Do you think it would be something though? Uh, do you guys do big runs of the Nutcracker every single year, or is that to the ballet? Well, no, that's more the ballet does that. A colleague uh, at the ballet told me he was he was at, before the holiday season started that he was he was looking forward to the twenty two performances of Nutcracker. <laughs> Yeah, I guess you do that 22 times, though, for 40 years. That's a lot of performances. That is. That is. Oh, yes. So, which is the piece you would love to play again and again? Well, you, you know, I, I would say the Mahler symphonies, for one. I, I, I love to play those. Uh, the the big clarinet pieces, Rachmaninoff, Second Symphony, uh, Scheherazade, uh, Capriccio Espanol. Uh, the, uh, there are so many that uh, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving out many. But uh, uh, you like, you know, I, I always enjoyed looking forward to the to those kind of pieces. And uh, we were lucky, we were lucky here in New York that, that we played such a wide repertoire. And, and uh, with all the guest conductors that came with the music they loved, and you got to, be, you got to really uh, learn uh, a lot because uh, we just didn't play one work of a composer. We we played a whole bunch of works by that same composer. And of course, premiered so many too and recorded premieres too of so many. Oh, there was a period of time uh, when we were recording uh, almost every day. Just everything was recorded. So you're going to think this next question is kind of silly, I'm worried, but... Uh... I don't play the drum. <laughs> you don't that play the drum. Question, was it? <laughs> That's my next question. Um, but it's not every day I get to talk to a Guinness World Record holder. So when you were awarded that, like, do they send anything? Do they make any fanfare about it, or is it just what, well, what you know, it, it's fun. I, that's I can say. Number one, it's fun. I mean, I you know, at my final solo concert uh, at the Philharmonic, the Copland Concerto, that when they came out and, and they showed this film that they had made, I, I didn't know anything about any of this stuff. So I was uh, really moved by some of it, and uh, and I couldn't believe some of it. And uh, the, one of the uh, presentations was from the Guinness Book People. They had a a, a framed uh, plaque with uh, with what the citation was, uh, and uh, they just handed to me uh, during the intermission on stage uh, after they did a film, uh, you know, uh, a presentation. They, they had a fantastic exhibit in the in the lobby of the concert hall going back to my start. And uh, I was presented also with the honorary membership in the Philharmonic Society, which was a very moving moment for me. I think I, I might have gotten very emotional at that point. And the city of New York had a citation uh, uh, in, involving me uh, and... Uh, and there were a couple of other things, so so it was really a uh, really a very moving time for me to be because I didn't expect all of that to happen. That sounds like an amazing event. Well, I'll never forget it. I can put it that way, you know. Marvelous time. So I'm going to skip back to a question from Erin O. She says, "I would like to know if there was ever a time in your life where you felt that you were in a rut and not growing at all musically." And if so, how you got out of it? And if not, what would be your advice for someone struggling in that situation? Well, uh, your, your musicians or any artists, I think we're, a lot, we're emotional people and we have our highs and lows. You know, there are frustrations. You know, you opened a couple of boxes of reeds and didn't find one that could satisfy you or, or fix one to make it satisfy you. Uh, there were times when 
when uh, the schedule was very heavy and there wasn't a free day for God knows how many weeks, uh, and it was it was a lot of uh, tension. Uh, where certain works came along that uh, were very difficult uh, uh, and had to be, uh, you know, it had to be done along with the stuff that was uh, familiar. And it's an all-consuming situation, uh, it, especially if you're in, in the performing world. You know, uh, uh, there are many moments where, uh, where, where you do get, uh, you know, uptight in a way i would i would assume uh, the, the 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 main thing is is consistency and 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 having your your eye on the ball i've had some exciting moments i must say uh, uh, where i had to jump in at the last minute uh, when I, with stuff i hadn't even played yet you know uh, uh, playing for a sick colleague sometimes or or a soloist that didn't show up and had to do a concerto and things like that. There were moments like this. That sounds terrifying. Doing a concerto just cold like that. There was, this, you know, the four. We play four concerts a week, and at the fourth concert, this famous uh, this singer uh, uh, Jesse Norman got got the flu, and uh, and when I got to the hall, uh, I got there was a message to call uh, the to call the manager, and uh, and he said that the. Uh, uh, the uh, Jesse Norman is sick, and uh, and uh, Zubin asked if he would play the Mozart concerto, and this was an hour before the concert, and of course no chance to uh, to to rehearse or anything. But uh, I mean things like that. I, I jumped in once for a colleague that uh, wasn't there when when I was uh, supposed to be off that piece. It, it was uh, the violin concerto of Shostakovich and. Uh, it's it's quite a part, and I hadn't played the, the piece in many years. I had to jump in on that. I had to jump in on a on another on a modern work once. Uh, uh, jumping in is there's no time to get nervous. That's the whole point. You, you just jump in, and uh, and and let it roll. I was just about to ask how you don't get nervous in those moments, but I guess you just focus on the goal and. Well, there's no time to, to get nervous in a certain way. You know, the, it's if if you're hanging around waiting for something, maybe uh, I would say I've had a lot of high points. You know, uh, uh, waiting to go out and play that Corleano concerto the very first time, that was a that was an exciting moment for me because it starts with a with a zillion notes, you know, and uh, and coming out of out of the ether, at a very soft situation. I, I would say I found out I had pretty good nerves uh, anyway, if nothing else. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, to what extent, though, do you think that's a level of preparation and, and to what extent do you think that it's sort of just your nature? Well, the thing is, you know, when you play every day, you're, you're in a groove. If you have to play many concerts or many rehearsals and you play every day, it's a big help. It's probably harder if you if you lay off and you're playing one concert a month or something, you know. Yeah, no, it's and that's what's hard. I find about being a sub locally is I'll sometimes get a call and and you're expected to just drop in and uh, and go, and that's very hard. Right, and and you know it's also it, I I think it's important to play a lot of a lot of uh, chamber music is very important to play because there you're actually. Uh, you're playing with small groups where where you everybody has their input, you know, and uh, that's that's important. It's also important to play recitals if you can, and and to, and to have people hear you and review you, because it's very easy to uh, 
to do a lot of playing where, where nobody says a word about what you did. You know, it's it's important to to be heard and to be to be critiqued. Absolutely. And, you know, I think it's important, too, to get critiques from people that you you don't know. I mean, there's a podcast coach that I know, and he tells you that he's going to be such valuable feedback because he's not your mom. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there are a lot of fine players that, that never do that. In, in the old days, before my time, a very there were very few uh, clarinet uh, recitalists, per se, you know, and certainly fewer recordings. Uh, you said people would say this player is great, and it probably was, but nobody ever heard them. Uh, they were they were in a, in a small city, or they were where they never went out on a small stage to play, where somebody could write about it. You know, speaking of players, this is a question from Bob M, and he says, "Which clarinetist today do you most enjoy listening to?" Oh, I like a lot of the players today. I think uh, the, in the in the major places, the or the ones we hear, uh, we don't hear everybody in a, in in a small town uh, or the university per se, but. I, I think the uh, the clarinet playing I hear in in Boston and and in Philadelphia and Cleveland, I mean, and in New York, I mean, it's very fine playing, very high level and uh, uh, focused playing, you know. Uh, and uh, I, I praise them all. Which soloists do you do you enjoy the most? Well, uh, soloists are they're more rare. I mean, there's so few clarinet soloists uh, because it's very hard to. To make a living just uh, going around with a clarinet case uh, around the world, you know, it's it's not like a fiddle or, or a cello. Or, but, but there are good, there are wonderful players everywhere, and it, and it they're not just in the big cities. Oh yeah, everywhere, the whole world now. Um, speaking of the whole world, there was a question, and I, I forgot to write down the name of this person. I'm really sorry, um, but it was about how do you think that clarinetists all around the world, especially those in in uh, developing countries can work towards trying to not only, you know, get instruments and training, but also build orchestras locally? Well, uh, building an orchestra, is a, that's a tough, tough, it, it, you have to have help and you have to have funds and so forth. But uh, I think no matter where a person came from, they, there are places to go to study with, with uh, fine teachers uh, because, the, because the playing today is international. It's not so uh, national as it used to be. And, and the instruments are made so well today. You know, uh, I, re I remember in, as a little kid, uh, uh, instruments were, were not as good. Uh, and, and everybody had to travel with four different barrels all the time uh, uh, to try to get in tune uh, where that doesn't happen anymore uh, today. Uh, they're made so well, and uh, they, 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 the world is, is, is with, with the information that you get everywhere, they, they hear everybody, and they, they certainly uh, can, can get opinions formed by hearing, uh, uh, you know, these fine players. It doesn't matter where they come from. They, they seem to be uh, an international level. Uh, of course, uh, the big talents, the great talents, a few, uh, are as, just as few as they were in my time, uh, my youth, uh, so maybe there are more players, but I don't know if there, if you could say there are more great ones. Uh, I don't know. I, I would say uh, uh, there are a lot of good players around. 
Well, of course, now with the internet too, almost anywhere in the world, you could study with almost whoever you want if you really tried. That's right. Uh, it, it has to, you know, it's always good to, to, to get ideas from people. And it doesn't only have to be on the instrument you play. You could get ideas from any instrumentalist that has, that has uh, some kind of fantasy in their soul where they can they make, a, make a beautiful phrase. Absolutely. So you mentioned the clarinets have improved a lot. What has been your favorite improvement? Was it intonation or something more technical? Of course, I would say from uh, from uh, uh, they can't improve the wood. That's one thing. Uh, the, the wood is the wood if you're using a wooden instrument. Uh, but I would say that the, the modern design of instruments, uh, the, the intonation is excellent uh, on the instruments. There's a lot of care. Mechanically, they're sound. They are definitely, uh, the woodwind instruments are definitely uh, excellent today. Did you ever experience with your commuting and the weather in New York any, any serious issues with cracking or other maintenance problems? I've, I've been lucky that way. I, 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 never had a, I never had an instrument crack. I did own an A-clarinet many years ago, one of the old ones with the curved octave key. It was, it was an old, old buffet, and it had a crack in it. That somebody uh, put a strip of uh, nail polish on the crack, <laughs> and, it, and it, it's had a great sound. I thought, uh, but uh, it, it, so even then, uh, uh, you were you had, were subject to, to changes. But I, I was very lucky. I didn't. I never had an instrument that cracked while I owned it. That's amazing. In over sixty years, you never had an instrument crack. So, what's your maintenance routine then? Do you think that there's just so much value in playing so much that the wood just gets used to that level of humidity, or? Well, you know, we have a good level of humidity in New York, for one thing. You know, in some places, I guess, if you go where it's extremely dry or extremely high, uh, there's, uh, there are problems. And, but I would say there's more problems with the reeds in those situations than there is with the instruments. So what's your maintenance like for the wood? Do you humidify it at all or just? No, no, uh, just stay in the case when it's not being played. Uh, I, I would say uh, you, you dry it out. I mean, uh, you know, you pull a swab through it uh, and, and the sockets, uh, you know, get the water out of the sockets. Uh, I, you know, people do all kinds of things with humidity. They put their reed case and the, they put the sponges in their reed case or something. I never did any of that. And I'll tell you why. Because I played so much, it, it never got dry. Well, that's amazing. And you know, too, like uh, the swab you're using, is it, is it like a magic swab, or how did you no, get no, the... <laughs> it's a, it's a, In the old days, the, the only swab that was used was one made of chamois, uh, in the old days. Uh, but then uh, the handkerchief swabs came in, and, uh, and then there's even different fabrics that's, that are used. Uh, I, I would say uh, it, the most important thing with the swab is that it doesn't get stuck in the instrument. <laughs> I take the mouthpiece off and I swab from the bell up. So you have to make sure that the cord or string is long enough to go through an A clarinet from the bottom of the bell to, through the through the barrel. You know, it's funny. I actually asked a debate question in the clarinet community one time about this, and uh, you wouldn't believe, or maybe you would believe, the the number of responses and sort of mythology around which way one should swab. <laughs> oh yeah, well yeah, that, yeah, that's true. And some people over swab, like they overdo everything, and and past a certain point, is uh, it's not necessary. How often do you replace your clarinets? Like, are you the kind of person who thinks that they get blown out, or do you just... If you use them a, a lot uh, uh, for, you know, for years, it, it can 
it can lose a little resistance. Uh, and I'd say for me, uh, I had, I've had, of course, many clarinets over the years. I would say uh, uh, eight to 10 years would be a good time to get another B-flat clarinet, a little longer with the A clarinets. So that implies that you don't go for a match set then, you just replace them when it's time? Well, uh, you know, I've been pretty lucky. I've had good instruments over the years. Uh, you know, I use Buffet, uh, and uh, it was the instrument of choice as, as when I was a young student. I have had good fortune with them, and, uh, and uh, they're a reputable, uh, venerable company, a lot of history. Do you have any advice for getting rid of old instruments, or did you keep them all? Or I mean, I'm replacing my clarinet for the first time in 20 years right now, and it's hard to let go of the old one. Well, you know, you, if you have something that you really loved, you keep it. You keep it, even if you don't use it. Maybe you take it out at Christmas or something and play carols. <laughs> Did you keep a set of backup clarinets always, or? Yes, I always had it. I always had two sets going. Sometimes I even had an extra. What do you think the most clarinets you ever had at one time was? Oh, I had well, three sets. I had an E flat clarinet, and uh, and I and I guess that was it. Not a huge, huge number I was expecting. It was more like 20 or 50. Well, I, I, I have an antique clarinet, you know. Uh, I have an, a very old, uh, early 20th century clarinet, uh, A. Robert, which is a French make. Uh, uh, I think they went out of business in 1940. They, they started, of course, many years before. It, it, it rattles like a pitched castanets, but uh, it's a nice old instrument. It just it, The look of it is so classic, you know. Love that. Thanks for sharing all that information about your instruments. That's super fascinating. I had a couple just extra questions at the end that I, I wish I'd asked you last time. So the first one is, there was an oboist recently talking about how they had repertoire envy and sometimes they wished composers wrote more for them. And, you know, we're lucky as clarinetists, but there still are some that, that we wish would have written for clarinet. So who's a composer that you wish would have written more extensively for our instrument? Probably Haydn, for one. He, he did use clarinets in the last symphonies. But they're very, very, uh, you know, rudimentary parts. Uh, and I would say also maybe perhaps some of the late, the late Baroque people. Uh, Is there any more contemporary composer as well who you... Well, you know, I, I think there are a lot of interesting, good composers today uh, that, that write challenging music, uh, that uh, explore different devices, uh, certainly with clarinet, uh, pieces that you hear that... Uh, strain the possibilities, uh, you know, all the different tricks of, uh, with harmonics and, and quarter tones and uh, extreme high register things with, in a very soft dynamic sometimes uh, that are challenging. You know, uh, there are, there are, they do challenge the, the players, but they seem to they handle it pretty well today because uh, the players of today or have the mindset to uh, to uh, envision these pieces. Absolutely. So my, my next question is, which unfinished symphony do you most wish the composer completed? Well, uh, Mahler 10th, for one. It would have been interesting to see what, if he had finished that 10th symphony, I think he, he, had the, he did the first movement and a fragment of, of, a, of a following movement. Uh, you know, Strauss wrote a, a wonderful oboe concerto. Uh, we wish he would have written maybe one for the clarinet. And he did, of course, that uh, duet concertina with bassoon, which is a great piece. You know, we've got a great repertoire on clarinet. Uh, uh, a lot of good solo works. 
Yeah, we are so lucky. I don't, uh, I definitely did not identify with the oboist who was talking about <laughs> that stuff where we've been so lucky as an instrument. Yeah, absolutely. We've got a lot of good pieces. And they're not only as solo pieces, they're in chamber music uh, also, of course. So this last question here, um, this is actually not music related at all. It's just something I was wondering. So it doesn't sound like you had a lot of days off throughout your career, but when you did have days off in the city, New York is so vibrant, there's so much going on. What would you do? Well, in, in, you know, we did we did go to performances. We went to all the good museums. Uh, we uh, we managed to uh, attend things, you know, uh, different plays and, and perhaps, and some Broadway. We also... Uh, uh, had uh, a, a busy time when we were off because uh, I, we were avid boaters and we had a, a small uh, cruiser, cruising boat and we'd spend uh, four to six weeks in the summer cruising the East Coast and places like Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard and, and Cape Cod, you know. So it, it, it added a little something to, uh, to what we were normally doing. What would be your favorite spot to go for like a good lunch? Uh, we like Uncle Nick's on Ninth Avenue. All right, next time I go there, I'm going going Uncle Nick's for lunch. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you'll join me. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. I've got just a quick five extra questions here, maybe seven. Um, these are exclusively for the people who help support the podcast. It's called the lightning round. Are you ready? I'm ready. <laughs> it's like a game show. So what is something that throughout your career you did every day that you felt contributed most to your success? Well, I always, I played every day. Every single day, even if you were sick? Yes. In fact, I performed sick. Um, what is your all-time favorite clarinet accessory? Dutch Rush. Ah, the Reed Rush. Right, Reed Rush. That was the, that was the vital ingredient because uh, it, clarinet players didn't use a knife to work on reeds in, in those days. Uh, only oboe and, and bassoon players did. If you could relive any aspect of your career, either because you loved it so much or because you wish you could improve it, which would it be and why? Well, what I miss the most is the challenge of the new. What is one thing that you know now that you wish you knew when you were much younger? I'm glad I didn't know it. <laughs> Ignorance is bliss? Absolutely. What piece of music or album changed your life irreversibly? Well, as a, as a kid... I think the, the the most exciting clarinet performance I heard was was the 1937 recording of uh, of Kell with the Bush Quartet playing the Brahms Quintet. I was so excited by it because it was absolutely like improvised. It was it was so free, and the first movement had about 12 different tempi. It was it was exciting. It was uh, a fantasy. And that, and that, and that uh, opened, opened up uh, a lot of thoughts uh, that one didn't get when they heard Foursquare playing. I, I heard an old, uh, old 78s, you know, it was made in 1937. And, and that, uh, uh, you know, was, was a, that was an exciting uh, discovery, I would say. Do you still have that, 78? It's on a CD now. I think it'll always be around. What was the performance or... Um, achievement that you mentioned also came to mind. Well, I mean, I, they, the most thrilling uh, performances uh, they, they, for me, I mean, they, they were a lot. But but I would say uh, being solo uh, soloist with the with the Philharmonic, and well, of course, doing the Nielsen Concerto and then the then the Corigliano Concerto. And of course, I did Debussy Rhapsody earlier on a recording, and, uh, and as a soloist, 
and I did Copeland Concerto many times and, and recorded it finally with uh, Leonard Bernstein uh, at his last appearance with the New York Philharmonic in, in October of 1989. And I was his last soloist that year. Uh, and then that was, and then I played with him again months later at Christmas in the East Berlin for the Freedom Concerts of the Ninth Symphony of Beethoven. Uh, I joined the International Orchestra. He, I was invited. That was an exciting moment also. Uh, playing at uh, the Nielsen Concerto uh, four or five times and then recording it a few days later on the stage uh, was exciting too because uh, it just brought back everything. Uh, and, and then that Corleano Concerto, was, uh, that was a monster, I'll tell you. That was a big piece. Uh, it was very lucky it was... The live, the actual world premiere of that uh, in '77 is on is in the set of uh, the historic broadcasts of the Philharmonic, uh, which includes uh, a lot of really uh, famous uh, solo, famous soloists, everybody from Heifetz and uh, people like that, and, and uh, Rubinstein, and you know, uh, really it was a, one of the one of my greatest uh, honors. Yeah, I mean, even half the achievements would be amazing. The fact that you lived through all this is just incredible. So congratulations on such an incredible career. Well, I, thank you, Sean. It's amazing uh, how fast it went. But uh, uh, I, I have a good memory bank, and, uh, and uh, I, I draw upon it, you know, uh, just from, from good memories and, and exciting stuff. And, uh, and the fact that I played with so many uh, good colleagues, uh, interesting players, uh, great players, uh, with 450 colleagues in the Philharmonic over those years, uh, which is another, <laughs> I, I didn't get, I didn't make that number up. The archives told me, and with uh, all those music directors, uh, and and hundreds of guests, and every one of them came with a repertoire they really wanted to do, and that's the point. Uh, that's why that's why a lot of those concerts were so marvelous. You mentioned your memory. What is your favorite way to look back on those memories? Do you listen to recordings or flip through pictures or? Oh, uh, sure. Multi, multi things, you know, I have a lot of, uh, you know, memorabilia, I have the recordings I have, uh, you know, uh, a lot of stuff. I was very lucky. Uh, Mitchell Estrin wrote a book, uh, a biography of me and it took him, you know, over a period of four and a half, five years. And, and uh, very happy that he did that. And uh, it's something I, I'm, I'm ha happy about. And, and uh, Jerry Bunky uh, did a, a wonderful set of uh, uh, five CDs. They're all live uh, performances over a long span of years of, of solo pieces and chamber music uh, that, that I played over the, over the years in m many different venues. Uh, so that uh, is exciting. And the fact that, I, uh, that I've done, you know, a lot of stuff like that, uh, early recording of the contrasts of Bartok with, for Bela Bartok's son Peter, who was the the engineer, and, and so so for me, uh, Library of Congress concerts with the Juilliard Quartet, uh, you know, fun stuff actually. So many things, and you. I want to come back to that biography in just a minute here, but um, before we move on, uh, what was your very first ever musical memory? Well, I heard a guy playing the clarinet in the in in the backyard of our apartment building there. Yes, he was playing klezmer music. And people would throw them coins down wrapped in pieces of newspaper. And that was the first clarinet player I really listened to. 
uh, I would say uh, that's, I don't know if that was an influence or not, but uh, I saw they were throwing them coins. That's super interesting because I don't know that that would happen today. I, I think that. No, no, it couldn't happen today. Though I, though I, we were in Paris not so long ago where there was a fellow playing the clarinet in the courtyard near one of the museums. And he was, he was pretty darn good, let me tell you. And uh, we had a, a fast chat while we were on the line to get in. And uh, so they're still playing this. And they play in the subways there, too. Man, you know, you never know who's watching. You might just be busking in Paris one day and, you know, Stanley Drucker could walk by. <laughs> That's, a, That's right. I'm super intimidated <laughs> to do anything now. <laughs> well, I think some of those guys are good. But, but I would say that early on, I, I heard uh, certain play, players, you know, uh, do, play certain pieces that, uh, that uh, you know, you, you really listen to. So the last question I've got here is, um, what is one book that you think everyone should read or what's your favorite book? You know, it's a, a reading is a luxury that one, you know, has to develop uh, because with, when you're playing all the rehearsals I played and, and travel to and from those and concerts, uh, I'll tell you, I, I really enjoyed two of the books that Eric Leinsdorf wrote. Uh, they had a lot of uh, spice in them about players and composers. And uh, one of them is called Eric Leinsdorf on music, and the other one is called Cadenza. Those two, I enjoy, uh, you know, history. I've, I've learned a little bit about the history of the Philharmonic going back to 1842. There, there, were, there have been, at this point, five books at various times in their history that have been written about the Philharmonic. So what did you do during all those commuting hours? And if you, like, did you read or? Yeah, sure. I looked at music and I also read. You know, I also caught up on the daily news. And uh, just to fill the time up, the, the ride was always an hour, uh, a little longer or a little shorter sometimes. And then, of course, the subway ride was very fast. Even to uh, the, the Carnegie Hall days uh, when we, you know, I played in Carnegie Hall for the for those first 12 years I was in the Philharmonic. They, they, they hadn't built Lincoln Center yet. And that was... Also, the same kind of a commute, except I had to go to 57th Street instead of 65th. Carnegie Hall was interesting. Uh, it, was, uh, it was a lively place with a lot of studios in the, in the tower. And uh, uh, the hall, you know, was, it was so historic and, you know, venerable hall. Tchaikovsky conducted there, imagine. Yeah, absolutely. That's amazing. I didn't know that. Yeah, at the premiere of the hall. He conducted his March Solonel. <laughs> it's, it's a march, a small march, you know, at the opening. The hall, the, the hall had, you know, history in its walls, you know, it was marvelous. You know, there's so much history as you walk around New York. It's just such a, such an amazing city, so. Oh, yeah. It's got a, you know, everything starts there, really, I think. Yeah, totally. So before we wrap up today, I, I really want to talk to you about your new biography that's out. Mitchell Estrin, uh, you know, who was a student of mine at Juilliard for, you know, for a bunch of years. He got his degree there. And uh, he, he uh, started interviewing me with his, with his tape recorder, you know, and uh, over a period of time. And uh, it all came together. I mean, it, it's, it's really great. You know, the, the book is pretty complete. Almost everything uh, of my recollections are in it. There may be something, maybe one or two things I didn't have in it. 
but uh, it's got a great index so the things can be found quickly and uh, and I love the, the picture they used for the cover it, it was one taken in Seoul on a tour and uh, early mornings and it's I call it my James Bond picture <laughs> it looks like a cloak and dagger picture you know anyway I talk about equipment about the conductors I played with uh, uh, some of the some of the uh, students have uh, worked with me. Uh, they they, uh, they wrote some nice words uh, and or yeah, interesting stuff, and and some of the conductors also were quoted uh, in. And John Corriano, you know, wrote a concerto for, for me and Lenny. It uh, he uh, he did the forward, and his father, of course, was concertmaster when I joined. Also, John Corriano. So is this book now publicly available? It is available. It's published by Carl Fisher. It can be gotten there, and it's also on Amazon. Well, you know, this is now on my clarinetist wish list. I'm going to have to definitely check that out right away. It's called Stanley Drucker Clarinet Master, a biography by Mitchell Estrin. Definitely an apt title. I, I was thrilled that it came to be, you know, and we didn't find any typos yet, so I'm lucky in that area. And and I'm, I'm also I want to pra- I want to praise what the work of uh, Jerry Bunky with uh, you know with Digital Force who who did the heritage collection of these recordings and to Mike Getson who uh, saved a lot of these uh, old tapes uh, that he that he collected over the years you know with, with concerts that were every kind of a venue you can imagine from a hole in the wall to a to a cathedral. It's amazing how how they they they, they turned out. I, I'm very proud of a lot of that stuff. So the Heritage Collection, yeah, we talked about that last time on the podcast, episode 63. You can check that out if you're listening. Um, and check out the show notes for today's episode for a special birthday coupon code where you can get a discount on that as a thank you for listening to Claire Neat. So thank you so much, Stanley, for coming on the show. Sean, thank you very much, and uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. And we share the interest. We share the same interests. Absolutely. The clarinet. <laughs> Absolutely. The clarinet. <laughs> clarinet, clarinet. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, your, your career is such an inspiration and uh, I really want to congratulate not only all of your accomplishments, but also your 90th birthday. That's a very special occasion. It's a scary number, but, but look, there's no alternative. <laughs> Keep up the good work. Great talking to you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Clarinet Podcast. Show notes for this and all other episodes can be found at clarinet.com. While you're there, don't forget to join our email newsletter for free updates, exclusive offers, and a chance to win giveaways. Guests, requests, listener feedback, and comments can be sent to feedback at clarinet.com. Special thank you to our season sponsor, Dario Woodwinds. Don't forget to check out their new show, Don't Blow It, on Instagram, and also try a box of their new reserve clarinet reads next time you're at the music store. The show is also brought to you by Chamber Music Northwest. With over $20,000 in prizes and world-class guests, artists, and vendors, their upcoming clarinet celebration and competition is an event that you don't want to miss. Learn more at cmnw.org. Hosting for Clarinet is sponsored by Bakun and their new line of Lumiere clarinets, barrels, and bells. Get 10% off your next accessory purchase by using code CLARINET at bakunmusical.com. This program was produced and hosted by me, Sean Perrin, in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Music performed by Michael Lowenstern. Debate episodes co-hosted by Andrew Morrow, audio editing by Brian Chappells, and copy editing by Megan Taylor. You can support the ongoing production of this independently produced program by donating to our Patreon at clarinet.com support. 
Supporters get early access to extended ad-free regular podcasts and exclusive access to patron-only episodes and live events. That's all for now. Be sure to tune in next time for more of what's new and neat with clarinet with the neatest people in the industry on the Clarinet Podcast.